Hello and welcome to Truth Talks, brought to you by South African author, theologian and church leader, Dr. Christopher Pepler. You know, the Old Testament contains some disturbing stories. And maybe one of the most disturbing is the story of the man who was stoned to death for picking up sticks to make a fire, presumably, on the Sabbath. But a millennium and a half later, the Lord Jesus addressed the matter of Sabbath law violations. You'll find that in Matthew 12, 1-8. But despite this, many today still read 1 Corinthians 11:17 17-34 as an early church example of the sticks and stones judgment of the Old Testament. But this time, not for violating the Sabbath, but for violating the sacraments. So what I want to do in, in this podcast is to attempt, albeit briefly and superficially, to deal with the troublesome passage, passages of Scripture which emerge from the Old Testament from, and do it from a Jesus perspective. Now, if you've read my books or heard my podcast or read my articles, you'll know that I'm a passionate champion of Christocentricity. This, in essence, signifies a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ as the ultimate revelation of the Godhead. From this comes what I've called the Christocentric principle, which is an approach to biblical interpretation that seeks to understand all parts of Scripture from a Jesus perspective. In other words, it's a way of interpreting Scripture primarily from the perspective of what Jesus taught and modeled, and from what He revealed concerning the nature, character, values, principles, and priorities of the Godhead. Now, in terms of this principle, when we encounter things in life or in Scripture that do not seem to conform to what Jesus revealed, then we need to raise a red flag. And by raising a flag, I mean we need to recognize that there is something we need to understand more about the troublesome texts or circumstances. The flag signifies Something's wrong here, probably with our own understanding, but something's wrong. You see, what Jesus said, did, and revealed of the Godhead is the standard against which we should be weighing everything. So therefore, we need to vigorously interrogate anything that appears contrary to this. Now, the passage from Numbers 15 uh, of the Picking Up Sticks episode reads as follows. It's from verse 32 to 36 of Numbers 15. It says, When the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody, because it was not clear what should be done with him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, we just don't know why the man was violating the commandment not to work on the Sabbath. There could be a whole bunch of reasons. Perhaps he needed to make a fire to cook his food, but had not been able to, because of sickness, to gather wood the day before. We just don't know. It seems, however, from this passage that Moses inquired of God, and we believe that he must have understood God to be saying, or he believed that God had answered him, that the poor man should be stoned to death. So what are we to make of this? How do we reflect this against the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, 
Many have argued that God was perhaps setting an example of what should happen to defiant Sabbath breakers, lawbreakers. But but wait a minute. Didn't Jesus, a millennium and a half later, say, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Moreover, he also said in Matthew 12, 7 to 8, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, that's actually found in, in Mark 2, and the previous passage was from Matthew 12. So this seems to be a, a fine-tuning, at least, or a direct contradiction, or a putting right of what the people had understood God to be saying. Now, he was being criticized when he made those comments by the Pharisees because he and his band of disciples had been traveling through some grain fields on the Sabbath. This in itself was problematic for the scribes and Pharisees, the religious teachers, because their theologians had worked out that walking anything more than a set number of paces on a Saturday, the Sabbath, was a violation of the commandment not to work on the Sabbath. So, Right off the bat, they would have been accusing Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath by traveling from one city to another on the Sabbath. Yet Jesus' disciples went one step further by picking heads of grain and rubbing them between his hands and eating them. Now, they were not only traveling on the Sabbath, they were also harvesting. And what was the legal penalty for this kind of Sabbath violation? Well, in strict terms, it was in Exodus 31, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. So when the Pharisees confronted Jesus with their perceived violations of the Sabbath, he responded with these words I've quoted, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, in the light of what Jesus said to the teachers of his day, we must surely also raise a flag when we read passages like Numbers 15. See, Jesus was responding to the accusations, the accusations of the religious people, for his current Sabbath violations. But he quoted from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, which is a prophetic word set in the context of the same era as the Numbers 15 passage. So something is happening here that we do not understand properly. Perhaps the man had been gathering wood to sacrifice to a pagan god. Maybe that's the problem. Or perhaps his child was sick and in urgent need of cooked food. I don't know. Maybe even Moses misunderstood what God was saying to him. We just don't know. However, what we do know is that in Jesus the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What we do know is what Jesus said to one of his disciples. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What we also know is that the Bible is a faithful and trustworthy record of what he said and did. So, we accept both the account of the stoning of the man of the Sabbath violation and the veracity of of Jesus' response to Philip. We, we don't query that maybe it was written wrongly or added later or Jesus' words weren't accurately recorded. We accept both. 
and we therefore have to weigh the one against the other. But, but here's the thing. Here's the big but of it that we need to confront. You see, we must take what Jesus said as the measure and yardstick of how to understand passages like the Numbers 15 incident. So I want to now move and pick up on something that Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth. And the full passage is in 1 Corinthians 11 verses 17 to 34. But the troublesome part, which relates to what I've been talking about, the stoning sticks and stones thing, is in verses 27 to 32. It reads as follows. Therefore, anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are sick and weak, and a number of you have fallen asleep. He died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Now the traditional interpretation of this passage is that God inflicts those who profane Holy Communion. And he inflicts sickness upon them and maybe even death upon them. So it's like a sticks and stones for violating the Sabbath thing all over again, but this time in connection with the sacrament of Holy Communion. So once more, this red flag needs to be hoisted and waved. You see, this understanding doesn't appear to reflect a Jesus perspective on the matter at hand. To put it into context, the Corinthians were celebrating the Lord's Supper within the context of a full meal. I wish we still did that. We should, I think. Now, in this meal, which incorporated the breaking of bread and the remembrance of what Jesus had did, these folk, at least some of them, were discriminating against the poorer members of the church. They were segregating them, putting them at the bottom of the table, and then they were eating all the good food and leaving nothing for the poor folk. What is more, they were even getting drunk on the wine, the table wine, the wine that was used for communion as part of that meal. Thus, they were also profaning the work of Christ commemorated by the sacrament. See, the church is the body of Christ. It's the body of Christ redeemed by his atoning sacrifice. And so, in this meal and in this communion, they were not recognizing the body of the Lord at both these levels, the social level and at the level of not taking seriously and profaning what Jesus had done. So, as a result, they were eating and drinking judgment on themselves. See, what seems to be going on here, I use the word seems loosely, what seems to be going on here is that some folk were evidencing an unchristlike and profane attitude and behavior. And because of this, they would suffer the consequences. They were, in effect, eating and drinking their own judgment. Now, as always, you see, Jesus is the dividing line and the standard. And this presents us with some real challenges when we come to the kind of passages I've been looking at. Now, in stark terms, There are implications of holding a Christocentric principle in interpreting Scripture. There's a cost to it. There's a weight that we must hold up and measure very carefully. And I want to set out 
six implications of the Christocentric principle. One, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his being. That's Colossians 1.15, Hebrews 1.3. Therefore, what he said, did and revealed, is definitive and the yardstick against which we measure all things. There's something double-minded in in saying the Bible is the inspired word of God. It, it declares in these stark and absolutely clear terms that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God. God is Jesus. Jesus is God. And God, in Christ Jesus, comes to earth and says, Here I am. I am God. Listen to me. Observe me. Copy me. And then we go away and we don't use that as the main interpretation of Scripture, the, the main yardstick. That seems to be very double-minded to me. The second implication. Jesus himself honored Scripture. He cited them often, and he thus authenticated them. Thirdly, the Bible testifies to Jesus' divinity, and to the fact that all things, all things, in heaven and on earth, were made by him and for him, and that in him all things hold together. That's Colossians 1, 16-17. Now, the all things in this passage most certainly includes the Bible. It didn't just drop down uncreated from heaven. Jesus is therefore the ultimate author and interpreter of the scriptures. And that's really important implication. Let me, let me say that again. Jesus is the ultimate author and interpreter of scripture. Fourth implication. To understand the Bible from a Jesus perspective is therefore to accept its inspiration and integrity. Well, no, we can avoid using terms like inerrancy and plenary inspiration, and we probably should. Why do I say we probably should? Because I think that those words have been so reinterpreted and used in so many different contexts that when somebody says they believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, I have to then say, well, what exactly do you mean by that? And it kind of needs half a book to explain it sometimes. So we can avoid using terms that are loaded and weighted. But we cannot contend that the Bible is untrustworthy. We, we can't in one breath say it's inspired, but it's not trustworthy. We can't do that. Therefore, and this is the fifth implication, Christocentricity demands that we respect the integrity of all of the Bible. However, it equally demands that the scriptures are to be understood from a Jesus perspective. What Jesus said, did, and revealed is the overriding interpretive consideration. And then a sixth and final consideration. And that's that all of this, numbers one to five, all of this means that our default position surely must be Christocentric. And then our secondary posture should surely be that there are many things in life and scripture that we do not fully understand. You see, a position must be, I must un seek to understand this from a Jesus perspective, but there will be many things that I do not grasp. Yet even then, we try as best we can to achieve greater understanding by viewing what seems to be an inconsistency. 
primarily through the lens of what Jesus said and how he lived and what he reflected of the Godhead. Now there is a, a certain dogma and a dogmaticism involved in these Christocentric statements I'm making. Peter quoted Isaiah 8.14 when he referred to Jesus as a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Now, unsaved folk stumble over the dogmatism. That's what they call it. You Christians are dogmatic. They stumble over the dogmatism that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. However, I believe that many believers stumble over the dogmatism that he, Jesus, is the prime interpreter of Scripture. You see, since the Reformation, many folk have come to regard the Bible as the source of truth and its own interpreter. So the word word of God is kind of applied almost exclusively to the Scripture. And then you find the formulas are things like, well, Scripture interprets Scripture. So what are they saying? The Bible is the source of truth and it's its own interpreter. However, Jesus is revealed in the very scriptures that are referred to here as the source of truth and is revealed as the interpreter of the Bible. Now, this is a big mental and faith shift for many, yet it is a necessary shift if we are to do more than pay lip service to the centrality of Jesus in all things. It's the shift to Jesus as the source of truth and Jesus as the yardstick, the primary interpreter of Scripture. One final word. As with all things spiritual, an either-or approach seldom, if ever, leads to truth. So we must not fall into the trap of choosing between Jesus and the Bible. Jesus is the living word, the Bible is the written word, and we need both if we are to comprehend truth. However, just as there is divine order in the Godhead between God the Father and God the Son, for instance, there is also divine order between Jesus and the Bible, God the Son and the Scripture. As the Son reveals the Father, so the Lord Jesus reveals the Bible. And the third personage in the divine trinity, the Holy Spirit, both points us to Jesus and illuminates the written word. I want to end with just one postscript. That is that, you know, I am actually fully aware of the different interpretations that exist of the texts I've cited. I'm also aware of that my interpretation is not the standard or traditional one. I'm also aware that there are many who point to the meanings of particular isolated Hebrew or Greek words, and I'm familiar with that. And I finally also re recognize and realize that I've run a bit of a risk in this podcast and this article in oversimplifying a complex interpretive issue. But I've thought running this risk is worth it for the sake of trying to make my central contention as clear as possible. So what for me is the driving issue here, a driving issue that doesn't solve all problems, but it presents us with a stark yardstick. Jesus is God. Jesus is the source of truth. Jesus is the prime interpreter of all Scripture. God bless you. Until we talk again. Thank you for listening to 
Truth Talks from Truth is the Word ministry. If you'd like to share your views, read up on related topics, or purchase one of Dr. Pepler's books, please visit his blog on truthistheword.com. And remember, truth talks.